Welcome, everybody, to this Edge of Mind podcast, where my guest today is the author and integral scholar, John Dupree. Join us in a wide-ranging exploration of the principles of intoxication, addiction, and sobriety. Our conversation begins with the origins of his landmark book, Integral Recovery, and John's experience with a traditional 12-step program. How does alcohol and other substances work to alter our relationship to the contents of our mind? Are there healthier ways to alter this relationship, like meditation? He then offers a rich rendering of the integral approach, including a thorough look at quadrants, levels, lines, stages, states, and shadow work. Why are all these factors important, and how does one engage in them all? What's the difference between distress and eustress, the good stress, and their relationship to translation and transformation? John elaborates on the use of spiral dynamics as a developmental schema, and then makes the distinction between dominator and actualization hierarchies before talking about alcohol and other substances as devolutionary drivers. How can we use all this information to enhance skillful means for helping others? The discussion then explores the benefits of the Enneagram as a method to better understand ourselves and others. These are all fundamentally maps of the prison and therefore very helpful if we want to make a prison break. The power of projection enveloped in shadow work is discussed in depth including the 3 two, one process of reintegration that allows us to take ownership of our shadows. Without this inner work, the beasts in the basement of our mind will constantly take us down and back to the bottle. John shares his rich experience with brainwave entrainment, how it works, how to use it, and why it's not cheating. The conversation then closes with a deep dive into how addiction is a matter of degree and how we are all addicts, whether we know it or not. I then share my own experience of detox and extended retreat and discover how my addiction is to thought and to movement. Can we legitimately reduce conventional addiction, intoxication, and sobriety to irreducible fundamental principles? What does being sober really mean? Is enlightenment the ultimate sobriety? John's ability to join heaven and earth, book smarts with street smarts, makes him uniquely qualified to talk about these complex issues and then bolt them into practical life. Welcome, everybody, to the Sedge of Mind podcast. My name is Andrew Holacek, and my guest today is John Dupuis, friend and author of quite a remarkable book that we'll be discussing today on integral recovery. And I will start with a formal official introduction, and then we're just going to launch right into a host of, I think, really compelling, provocative topics. So John Dupuis is the founder of Integral Recovery, author of the award-winning book, Integral Recovery, A Revolutionary Approach to the Treatment of Alcoholism and Addiction, and CEO of iAwake Technologies, a company that creates cutting-edge, high-tech brainwave entrainment soundtracks that deepen meditation, support the healing of emotional issues, and enhance mental focus, creativity, and flow states. John is also co-host with Dr. Roger Walsh, the podcast Deep Transformation, Self, Society, Spirit. And I have to interject, I've been a guest on this um, program. It's the best. These guys are just the best. Um, a dialogue, dialoguing with cutting edge thinkers, contemplatives, and activists to explore the great questions of our time. John is passionate about the grit, grind, glory, and grace of daily integral transformative practice and is also a singer-songwriter 
with a passion for playing the blues guitar, which is like so awesome. We just connected on that level because I, I told him I'm, I played Dead White Man's music and we have that bond as well. So Don, big warm welcome to our little podcast here. I'm super excited to dive into this thing. Thanks for joining us, man. It's it's an honor and a pleasure. So let's get rolling here. Wherever wherever the river goes, we'll follow. I love it. I love it. Well, so um, let's start uh, with uh, why did you write this book? And, and I want to say something at the outset. It's like disclaimer. I, um, even though I'm a, a student of, um, you could say, addictive principles, and I think we'll be talking a little bit about that later, um, I've never been a, 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 a so-called official formal substance abuser. So I want to be very careful with the disclaimer that some of my comments don't come across as being facile and dismissive of the complex multifactorial nature of this, which in fact is integral to your integral approach to this topic. Um, and so don't be afraid to bust me, uh, bust my chops. If I say something is like, oh, Andrew, that's just not the way it works, right? But let's let's start with uh, what inspired you to write this book? Because it really is, I was blown away with this thing. Guys. It's a really remarkable, incredibly comprehensive approach to recovery. And there's so much I want to unpack with you, but let's start with that. Okay. Well, uh, I lived in the, the Bay, San Francisco Bay Area for about eight or nine years and very rich time in my life. Um, I was Fritz Off Copra's graduate assistant. And at that time, everybody was buzzing around him. So I got, I was like a fly on the wall for meeting all these great people whose books I'd read and heard about. And uh, I started, I was, I was studying to be a therapist in grad school. And I started working at a treatment center and uh, it was for adolescents. And that's where I became familiar with the 12 steps and you know, just addiction, listening to stories, going to meetings. I would take my students to meetings and we go there together and hear their stories. And if you're, you know, you haven't been living with your head under a, you know, a, a rock or something, you realize that it's a huge, huge problem in our, in our society, our world, our country specifically. And I can't think of any other place where it's not also true. So I was, I, I, I really enjoyed the 12 steps because basically I've come from a spiritual orientation. I had my first big grace flashbang grenade when I was 11 years old. And it's like, uh, wow. Yeah. This, you know, I was just reading the new Testament. I was raised Catholic. Mm -hmm. told stuff, Right. And uh, so anyway, that started me on my life, my, my lifelong quest to find God and to, to, I don't know, be, be an instrument of the love that I saw and felt coming through that. And, and the basic revelation was it's all God and God is love. What? Wow. My poor parents didn't know what to do with me. And uh, anyway, it, it was quite an interesting story. It goes on and on. So I, I, I liked the 12 steps a lot because I, I could see they had really a practical value. And basically, I saw the 12 steps as something that would be good for everyone not just mm-hmm. addicts or alcoholics. So um, after a, a few years in the Bay Area and doing that scene, I got, um, I visited a friend in Southern Utah and I'd always, there's a lot of wilderness in my background, but I just fell in love with the red rocks and the canyons and the mountains and uh, so much wilderness and so few people. And uh, finally I got my wife, she was my wife then, but we were together then. And um, we wrapped up all our, 
responsibilities, bought an old four-wheel drive pickup and clunk de clunk de clunk uh across a Nevada to um to Utah and that became our home. And we were just we were in Moab, we dropped stuff or come and get supplies, but we spent around six months just yandering and wandering uh through the wilderness. And at that time I did my first vision quest. Hmm. All about my lonesome, just a prayer fast, like, okay, here I am. Show me a way to go because if I don't I mean, you know me better than me, but I'm 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 just going to be a miserable person unless I find I have some purpose in my life because I'm not a seven on the Enneagram. I'm sorry, all you seven, but being having fun with not number one thing. So, uh, so I did. I got I got I received a vision, and it was the part uh, mm. of an ongoing journey. Shortly thereafter, we uh, ran into these nascent wilderness programs in southern Utah where they were taking young people out on extended journeys into the wilderness to. I don't know, to get them away from their, you know, bad scenes, give their families a break, have time to sort themselves out, learn some self-confidence and and stick with itness and uh, a new perspective that perhaps there is something more going on that they knew in their lives. And it turned out about at least 80%, if not more, were there because of drug problems. Hmm. And um, and we didn't handle it very well. You know, we just, well, here, here's a 12-step workbook. Go sit under that pine tree over there and, uh, you know, fill out the paperwork. And, and then, you know, it's like, I don't even know we did that. That came later, but it, it was insufficient. So um, later on, I was given an opportunity to, to engineer and, and develop a new program. And I wanted to do it for adults 18 and over who were there because of drugs and alcohol. And I, I did adults because they, nobody's really doing it that time. And I had so many friends that were doing adolescent programs that um, uh, I thought, well, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to compete with them and I want to work with adults anyway. Hmm. So we started that and uh, we, we hired a addiction expert, and he blew his knee out like on the second day. And pretty soon I found myself as being the expert on addiction. And I'm not an addict. Okay. I have suffered from depression at a depth that is uh, life threatening. My older brother committed suicide. So this is not just having a bad day. But for those of you out there who, who know what that kind of depression is, death seems like a really good thing. It's yeah. a break from this. If it's th not this, anything that's not this is good. And uh, that's why people can do that without fear. They just, they're so overwhelmed by the suffering. Uh, they they just want to want to go. And after my brother died, I actually went into the same sort of depression that he had yeah. and really learned it. So my students, they could get that. I knew what I was talking about. And because why? Because I'd listen to them deeply and ask questions and I would teach a student of mine said this, and I just put it all together. And, you know, they say you can't bullshit a bullshitter. You know, addicts are pretty good like that. When they start getting sober, they've been so into just covering up and lies. They can really detect other people who are liars. And they didn't uh, do that with me. And so I was trying to pay hey, 12 steps is great. But there's other stuff. There's like nutrition and relationships and, and physical health and blah, blah, all of these things. And at that point, I uh, discovered a podcast. It was Ken Wilber's podcast at the time. Mm -hmm. And I'd read some of his books in graduate school and was mightily impressed with his early work. 
but I, I found a uh, a PDF file, which is called what is Aqua or something like that, or what right. is integral. It was about forty pages, and it late, later became the book, The Integral Vision. And I read it, and immediately it was like the Rosetta Stone for recovery. I just saw how, oh, really? Bam, bam, bam! This covers everything, yeah. and shows you how to do it and how to balance it. And I, I was, I was just. Elated, I was in a state of grace. You know, that big light bulb had, had gone on. So I started calling the integral folks, and um, they had a, a eight who was uh, answering the phone that day. And I said, "You know, my name's Shadow Queen." And she said, "We don't have time for this. We're busy." Click. And uh, I was in such a state of grace. I was like, "They really are busy. They're doing such great work." Didn't phase me at all. So um, at, at some point, it started getting into to my head that maybe. I was going to have to write the book about this, or I was going to have to bring this forward because it didn't seem anybody was applying Ken Wilber's uh, aqua map, which is all quadrants, all lines, all levels, and all types um, to, to recovery from addiction. And one of the, the other main ideas that Ken was bringing forth, and he looked like a Greek God at the time. I mean, he was in great shape and he, you know, he suffered uh, physically um, since then, but, it's like it's all the spirituality and have a great body too. And oh, it's integral practice. You got to work your body. You have to work your mind. You have to work your your soul, your interiors, your your wounds, your shadow, and a spiritual practice. Yep. And if you put that together, you got something. I, was like, I think that may be the key for for recovery and lifelong sobriety. So I started working on it. And of course, I was struggling with my own uh, depression that would come and go. I remember if you're depressed, it does go away. Uh, you know, when you're in the middle of it, the voice says, this is it. This is forever. This is reality. It'll never change. It'll never get any better. And that's when people uh, commit suicide or harm themselves. So I started working on it and I started practicing and I was meditating every day. I'd always been to working out. And I started sharing it with my students. I wrote um, a couple of papers that got published and very good responses. Uh, and I went and met Ken Wilbur and he was, he said, this is it, really good. You know, no, no corrections, you, you've got it down pretty well. And at that point, I uh, took a little time off from working. Uh, my wife was a therapist and she was still working in the wilderness with, with clients and I don't know, two or three months, and I wrote my, that book. And oh. that's, yeah. That's, wow. I mean, amazing. We, I, it, I'd like to unpack with you a little bit further, John, this amazing model, the integral approach. Um, and honestly, one of the real highlights of the book for me is I read every one of Ken's books. I've read a ton of, of commentary literature and all these integral medicine, integral law, integral dentistry, whatever. And I honestly, your your review overview of the integral approach is it's the best I've come across. I thought it was really fantastic. And so for me, again, and I'll turn this over to you to give us a, a brief overview of what is an impossible thing to do in a relatively short period of time. The extraordinarily um, descriptive and prescriptive power of, of the integral approach that it's like you were suggesting, it really does cover all our bases. And so nothing that needs to be in there. It it's, covers it's, all the bases. It's quite, it's really, that's why we're such fans of the integral approach. 
But you mentioned what Aqual alludes to. You, you ping through a little bit the lines, levels, states, types, that sort of thing. But let's backpedal just a teeny bit so people who may not be familiar with the integral approach can wrap their mind a little bit around it and why this is so compelling and so powerful when it comes to things like integral recovery. So an impossible question, but uh, summarize um, the aqua, the aqua approach, the integral approach, and why it is so applicable to things like substance abuse. All right, I'll give the <laughs> elevator speech here. Okay, so uh, the aqua or the integral map are I guess four or five different lenses that you have to have to be considered in every occasion if it's going to not leave out something essential. So it starts off with four quadrants. Just imagine a cross. And in the uh, upper right, you have, uh, we'll apply, you could apply this to hamsters or baseball teams or whatever, but let's just talk about a, a human being and probably uh, uh, somebody who's suffering from the disease of addiction. You have physical body, right? And obviously, uh, if maybe not obviously, but if you've been long-term uh, a heavy user, and the disease is progressive, it gets worse and worse, your body is, is incredibly affected, whether it's alcohol, whether it's cocaine, whether it's heroin, uh, methamphetamines, you name it, or prescription pills, They're, they, they beat your body down. So that has to be included. On the other side, the left-hand side, you have the individual interior, okay? That's your, your thoughts, your feelings, uh the part of you that you become well acquainted with if you um if you meditate a lot and do interior work so that's your faith your hope your feelings your hatred your wounds your shames your loves i mean all of that stuff is is um uh what's in the left hand upper quadrant and for example you could take somebody like you that's very um uh, open and understands the beauty of classical music and you can put on your favorite piece of Mozart or whoever it might be and you will just go into this magical realm well if we had you hooked up with all the devices now to read the brain and stuff like that we would see some amazing things going on in your brain the frontal lobe may lights up in different things and we can compare with people and say wow music has a powerful uh, effect on the brain you know it does this and that and that's completely useful and helpful information, but it says nothing about your feeling when you are uh, listening to the music or in your case, playing the music. For that, we have to ask you, what does it feel like? Or uh, uh, being in love, you can do the same thing. The brain, brain reacts for people that are being in love. Most of us have been there. And, uh, you know, it feels incredible, but you can't understand love just by looking at the brain. It tells you really, really good stuff, but you have to, to get the interior, the, the, the subjective experience. You have to have been in love, talk to people, listen to Beatles songs, uh, sonnets of Shakespeare or, you know, Rumi, all of these guys, they can tell us about what it is like to be in love. So that's the upper two quadrants going down below uh, lower left. We have your, we space your uh, community, okay, uh, who you hang out with and that. And there's never been an addict that was created in a vacuum. It, it's always relational. And when you start using, you know, you can go to go in your high school and, and the majority of people uh, become addicted when they're young. 
because they they determine that the human brain is more susceptible to becoming addicted when you're a teenager than when you're 40 years old. Not that it doesn't happen, but it's usually the exception. So um, you have to get drugs from somebody, you go to a party, you have a drink, you're 14 years old, it's like the best thing ever. You know, most alcoholics say they can remember that first drink, you know, or that first line or whatever. It was incredible love at first sight. So you go back to the next party with those people and none and none, and it just grows and grows and grows. And then, of course, it starts affecting all your relationships, your family, because they know something's going on. You're acting in weird ways. You start to steal stuff. Uh, you know, you get confronted and you rage out and, you know, and attack them for attacking you. And it destroys your relationships. So you build new ones toxic relationships, the whole, the we space is very important. And then if you're going to get well and not let this disease destroy your life and, and deeply wound the people that you care about, it's going to take a whole village of people to get well. You're not going to do it on your own either, you know? And if you can just go off in the woods and stop drinking and never have another drink, by definition, you're not an addict in my book. You know, an addict is somebody who sees at some point, they can see what's happening to them when they have those flashes of honesty every once in a while, but they just can't stop. They're powerless over it. And in the moving, uh, the next side, lower right, you have just the physical world, right? And uh, if you come from a family with a lot of money, it's a lot easier to get into, uh, you know, good treatment centers and they can send you away for six months, which is really good. The longer, the better. Or, or, you know, do you have a house to live? Have you have you mortgaged the future, uh, you know, of your house, your children? You, you know, what is that uh, your relationship to the world and all the things it takes to be a human being in a postmodern uh, world that we live in? So all of these quadrants are affected by the disease, the physical body, the individual self, all your interiors, your relational world, and then just your your practical world all of that. And to get better, any model or program that leaves out any one of these essential dimensions is, is going to be found lacking. It's a really wonderful, wonderful um, overview, John. But in your experience, kind of have the blessing and the curse, um, because they're, because it is so comprehensive, is it too much? I mean, when you're working with clients or when you're working with um, people who act are dealing with levels of substance abuse, what is your personal history in terms of like, whoa, geez, Louise, this is a lot of responsibility. How do people generally respond to this? Is it just, is it TMI kind of thing? Or it's like, oh my gosh, this has so much explanatory power. Now I can see how I can work with this kind of divide and conquer approach and, and then use it in the prescriptive capacity. So what is your personal experience working with people and their receptivity to this integral approach. Well, obviously this is not, not obviously, but this is not the rap that I would give person their first day in treatment. Right. Right. <laughs> what are you out of your mind? And uh, so it just, it, everybody's different and it depends how, you know, your background, who you are, your brain, your life experience, how far down, you know, the, the hell hole of addiction are you? And first of all, uh, you know, when I worked with students and I worked in the wilderness with these addicts and I worked indoors too, our, our house became a treatment center for eight years. That was amazing. And, um, 
you have to build trust, you know, and the basics. And sometimes you have to be very confrontative, you know, come in there angry addicts. They don't want to be here. They, uh, my parents are blah, blah, F them, blah, blah, that. And I said, okay, I don't really have time to waste with you. So I'll call the sheriff. And they said, you're supposed to be here. And you want to be here. Don't mess it up for the rest of these guys who do. Bye-bye. No. -bye. Okay. Okay. So sometimes love is very uh, strong and confronted. It's not just, oh, you poor baby. It must've been bad. Well, there's a time for that because, yeah, you poor baby, it's been horrible. But you have to really, uh, you know, be the wizard and understand it, uh, where you're, where they're at. And eventually, as time goes on, like after a month, I used to say, if I'm still working harder on your recovery than you are, something is sorely missing. Because mm -hmm. this is about your life, you know. And I would really like for you to get sober, but, you know, man, I got my life already. or I got one. So uh, it's it's just bit by bit. And, of course, we're we're thinking about this from the very beginning. I mean, we're going to have to start dealing with exercise and nutrition and rebuilding uh, brain chemicals and all of that stuff. And we're going to have to find out, or do they have any uh a religious background or spiritual experiences? Are they hardcore atheists? Are they like most people kind of agnostic or, you know, where do they stand? And then we start, okay, uh, the relationships, you know, because sometimes uh, your relationships growing up will determine whether you become an addict or not. And it definitely seems to be genetic. So if you have two grandparents and both your parents were alcoholic, like, nope. Can't go there. You're, the chances of you making it through. Uh, and one one uh, uh, person told me the Cherokee tribe, they did a study. If you drink as a Cherokee, this is what I was told. And I've had a lot of Native American friends that you will become an alcoholic. Wow. There is no hope. You're wow. just not. So all you have to do is accept that and just not drink. And, you you know, you can go on. So um, there's a lot of. Uh, and then you have to start planning for in the lower right, where's he going to live? Can he go back uh, doing what he was doing? And with his all his old buddies, you don't have a snowball chance in hell to make it. You know, it takes a whole new re reorientation to life. And after a while, um, people begin to have some hope and say, wow, I can't have a life. And this doesn't hang on. And um, yeah, anything you want to add to that? Yeah, no, I, I, I mean, I do want to toss in one thing just very briefly that I simply forgot to say. A nice little um, kind of summation tool is the, the integral approach is basically the inside and the outside of the individual and the collective. Yeah. Like, what else is there, right? I mean, that pretty much covers everything. And that's the genius of this model. But I was also thinking here, John, that in, in terms of the integral approach, I guess on one level, what I'm hearing you saying is that you can be an integral provider. And you don't have to spell out the integral model for a person, right? I mean, they, they you can just simply approach your treatment if you're actually someone who is working to help someone in recovery. Your approach can be integral. You don't have to overwhelm them with a map that actually creates your methodology. Right. So, so I guess the, the question there would be, so on that level, I can see it's not an issue. But someone picks up your book and they want to self-provide, Right. Then uh, I'm curious, like what what have you in your experience has been the level of receptivity towards that? Someone who picks it up and says, "Whoa, this is like this is 
effing awesome or like, well, this is like effing too much. So I'm curious what it, what your response or experience has been around that more individual level. Well, right. And it really depends, you know, if you're dealing with a 13-year-old addict, you're not going to sit them down and tell them about uh, Ken Wilber's uh, model. However, uh, I, I did do groups kind of like I'm talking to you and explaining these things to many groups of adolescents and, and young adults. And often I would get, well, why didn't anybody ever tell us this? You know, you're like, really? Yeah. So, um, but you have to be, each individual's an individual. And so you have to kind of be sensitive. It, it's, it's half science and half art. You know, and so you've got to you've got to figure out these things and when appropriate and and how it works together. And when you have whole groups of people working on this stuff together, it becomes a communal experience. And uh, it, it just depends on the individual. Yes, you hold the integral, but you don't shove it down their throats until uh, it seems appropriate. If it would be helpful at that point. Fantastic. And so before we transition into uh, to give you a scope of where I'd like to take this. Before we transition into some of the more um, 50,000-foot view, dare we say, philosophical approaches to the larger kind of principles of sobriety, intoxication, and the like, I want to just have you um, riff a little bit on some of the things that I found really particularly illuminating in your book. And one was this, I think, incredibly helpful distinction between distress and eustress. In other words, the two forms of dissonance Sure. One of which is not so healthy, that's distress, and one which is actually a, a driver for evolution and growth. And I think in your own words, you say uh, stress is the mother of evolution. Um, and like, you know, on one level, Trumper Mbache, the radical, um, you know, you know, his work, who uh, the, the sit out from the Tibetan tradition famously said, chaos should be regarded as extremely good news. Well, sounds good on paper, doesn't sound so great in life. So talk to us a little bit about um, how uh, eustress, the beneficial stress, can be a propeller from, again, brief interjection uh, with the integral approach, from translational approaches to transformational approaches to, to the human experience. Well, well absolutely. And uh, uh, being in the wilderness, by the way, for a lot of people, is uh causes distress in the beginning uh, but uh, but quickly becomes eutress eustress and uh, you know you're in the wilderness we don't come in if it rains or snow there's a blizzard we have to we had tarps you know didn't even have tents and we'd have to start the fire using the friction method and everybody had to learn how to do that and cook together and set up camp and uh, restore the place we camp afterwards. We crush all the coals and then scatter the, the ashes in the bushes and stuff. So you literally couldn't see we had a fire. Unless it was an established fireplace that's been used for centuries, that's different. So it's very hard. You're you're not in great shape and you start clunking up the mountain or down into the canyon and it's it's really hard. And that's good because it's well exercise being one of the, the things that I stress so much is you put your body under stress, but that's positive stress. It, it changes your brain chemistry in positive ways. It just pushes you. You learn, you learn that you can push yourself. You learn that you're tougher than you thought that, you know, you start building self-confidence and your body starts feeling better. And, uh, wow, compare this to what I was doing before. And you can start making those decisions. So being, uh, being too easy, is really not good 
Uh, and well, that's why I selected for the most of the time I was working in the wilderness because uh, I could have a bad day and the wilderness was still there and uh, helping these people grow. And the whole spiritual conversation uh, in the Utah wilderness under the stars at night becomes, uh, yeah, sure. It's just like, yeah. I mean, it puts it in a state of awe, which is one of the beginning things of spirituality. Mm-hmm. And um, and later on, I started using the technology and iAwake technology, and people started progressing really quickly in their meditation. And from being, you know, F this, F that, I hate religion, I was abused by this or that, you know, and just all this resistance, they begin to see that, wait, this is some, this is for me. I'm not doing it to please anybody else. And uh, in my meditation room in our house, we, the first, first, I don't know, week or so, everybody just laid out on the meditation cushion. And after a couple of weeks, have all these little Buddhas there, you know, really focusing on there. And I had a, uh, doing an hour in the morning and an hour in the evening. Can you imagine a bunch of addicts right off the streets meditating uh, for two hours a day? But they, they, and then we would discuss, well, what came up for you? And uh, sometimes things for the past, how do you deal with shadow stuff and the pain as it emerges? How do you deal with, you know, the incessant yabbering of your own mind and all these things? And so people could share with each other. And obviously I was kind of the senior student, but, and people could start helping one another. And it became something uh, by and large that uh, they embraced and they felt good about being in treatment because it was small. It was very loving. It was very hard. It was very cool and had a lot of things going for it. I'm wondering how long those lines when you start to introduce meditation, which I think is a fantastic integral approach. Let me, I, I'm curious how this lands with you, um, John, is that, again, when I look at my own experience with um, recreational drugs, which I, I don't do that at all. I mean, I'll engage in that type of thing as that kind of a psychonaut now to just explore my mind under those particular regions. But like anybody else, I, I'll have a cocktail. If I'm in the Yucatan, I like my little... A margarita, you know, I, and I know it's in my own experience when I, I engage in something like that. What it does for me is, um, in a certain playful way, double entendre intended, it, 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 it acts as a solvent in a certain way. It, it puts, it liquefies my relationship to the contents of my mind. It puts my mind in solution, quote unquote. And so, and another way to say this, and this is the one I want to see how, how this lands with you, and why I think why this is important. Um, in terms of understanding why people are doing what they do, is that it, it it alters our relationship to the contents of our minds. And that may seem somewhat clinical, but that's sure as heck what it does for me. Uh, you know, previous, prior to drinking, my thoughts are so reified, they're so solid, they're so heavy. I think that's the central ingredient of depression. The more you reify, solidify the contents of your mind, the more it takes you down because everything is so heavy. Conversely, enlightenment is de-reification. The more you de-reify the contents of the mind, the more uplifted and light you are. So is it fair to say in your own experience and also working, again, this is where I I made the disclaimer at the beginning, I don't want to be facile and dismissive about the the seriousness and the intensity of what actually takes place in traditional um, instances of substance abuse. But I do think that we can perhaps explore parsing out, taking apart, reducing healthy reductionism the phenomenology of the addictive process and what takes place when we engage in these. So is it fair to say from your experience working with others that this alteration in relationship to the contents of mind is one of the drivers that people may not be aware of when they imbibe in it? And then when they engage in meditation, what are you doing? 
you're cultivating a healthy new relationship to the contents of mind, right? So instead, of, instead, I believe we say, uh, take a sip of space. Take a sip of space. Take a drink of space as a way to establish a new perspective and a relationship to your to your heart, mind, feeling. So does that land with you or does that seem a little bit too facile? Well, no. And, and um, one of the things after we do the meditation, there were some of the best groups I ever did in my life. An hour of this stuff and things begin to loosen up and you begin to identify the addict voice. And what does the addict voice want to do? It's it's almost like having a demon inside of you. It wants to destroy your life and kill you. And it'll use any weakness or any excuse uh, at all to get you using again. And so they they begin to learn uh, that part of themselves. And they begin to learn the spiritual part, the emotional and the intellectual. It begins to be more spacious. And um, yeah, and, and harm reduction is great if you can do it. But, you know, there's there's different degrees of this disease. And and some, you know, you can be 10 years sober, you have one drink, see ya. You're off to the races. You're trying to make up for 10 years of drinking. And and that's the deal. And 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 a lot of people uh that I've worked with were were having problems with drugs, okay, or alcohol. Mm-hmm. They were going through a rough spot in their life. Maybe they're partying too much, maybe they hadn't dealt with some of the issues that were handed them when they were growing up and they just, okay, they can moderate, they can change their habits and that's fine. And every addict in the world would love to be that person. But you, you just have to find, you know, after enough relapses, after enough crises of enough time in jail of enough broken relationships, you begin to get, uh, no, I really, really can't. And I really, really wish I could, but all the wishing ain't going to change anything. And I've got this predisposition that kicks my ass and wins every time. So, it, yeah, if you can do that, that's that's noble and good. And, and if you can drink, drink. If you can't, you can't. Sorry, I didn't. I didn't make that world. That's just the way it is. The other thing that immediately comes to mind here is that and this is what I meant when I said facile, and it just clicked to me. It's it, it's it's a type of, uh, in, in integral language, um, quadrant absolutism, right? Don't put all your eggs in one basket or in one quadrant. So in other words, someone who's, and this is, this is an extreme example, but I think you get it. Someone who's like really deep into the meditative spiritual thing, and for instance, let's say, oh, they're really deep, deep into intimacy, emptiness teachings, and they'll say, oh my God, it's just relate, everything's empty. Relate to the contents of your mind, they put everything in the upper left quadrant in the inner um, eye um, aspect. And then, hey, what a surprise, that doesn't work because it doesn't pay, like you're saying, if I'm hearing you properly, it doesn't acknowledge the severity of the, the biophysical aspects of it, how this stuff is actually working at a physical level in your brain, neurochemically with neurotransmitters and whatnot. It doesn't acknowledge that, let alone the we quadrant and the, and the it quadrant. So I, I think this helps me answer my own question. And I want to just, again, toss it back into your court that it's very easy. And I look at my own experience. like, ah, if this person was just a meditator, they wouldn't have to drink. Boy, geez, there, there's a classic. Wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't that be nice? Yeah. And so, again, the genius of the integral approach, the humility that it brings about, that it's saying, yes, you know, there's, tr- there's truth in every one of these. And why not? take advantage of all these different modalities within each one of these quadrants as a way to address the multifactorial complex nature of this disease. Because otherwise, 
it can become dismissive and passive. Just say, oh, it's just like we're dieting. Oh, why don't they just use their willpower, right? Because again, we don't approach the complex, messy nature of these types of, of phenomena. Yeah, and addiction destroys your willpower. That's like the first thing to go. You know, that's why you can't quit. Yeah. Uh, we, but also, you're absolutely right in the upper right, the, the physical. There's all kinds of stuff. I mean, we've met, learned more about the brain in the past 15 years and the prior 15,000. You know, I mean, we're just learning more and more about it. And we did a lot of education. This is why you do this. And this is what the brain reacts. And this is why, you know, what an addict's brain does. And this is what it doesn't happen in another person. So, yeah, that that's very important. And you're right. Whatever area you neglect will probably be the area that will cause you to relapse. So you just, you know, you just got to co- cover all the bases as, as well as you can. That's uh, let's put an exclamation point on that. That is really well said. So if you don't acknowledge the, the I mean, in this particular cartography, all four quadrants, one of those other three is going to come up and bite you in the ass. Yep. Um, and that's really, I think, very helpful. And so in relation to this, also, I, I really love your languaging here. Um, again, bringing in this relationship issue to the contents of mind, the kind of meditative aspect. I love what, when you talk about urge surfing. That's such an interesting neologism for me. It's like a, a, establishing a new relationship to, in this case, ride, surf the contents of desire and urge and relate to it instead of from it. So since we are talking a little bit about the upper left, the uh, inner phenomenological aspect, Tell, talk to us talk to us a little bit about that um, before we transition into some of the other issues. Well, ur- urge surfing, is that what you'd like? Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I just think it's such an interesting, beautiful yeah. phrase. And again, well, it, when, and, and, you know, the, the addicts and alcoholics who have been through this will know when 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 the wave rises or that craving comes, it's it's like uh, it, it's not like I would you know, really like a drink, that would be great. It feels like you're going to die if you don't have a drink. Okay. And it's, it's, it's panic. It's, it's, it's a, it's a type of uh, uh, craving that either you have to go on through it or you have to sit around the campfire and, and listen to people tell their stories for, you know, dozens of years. Uh, but it does pass like a wave comes up and it goes. So okay, I'm here. I feel okay. I didn't drink myself under the table. I made it. Okay. And that's really something to celebrate. You know, is it go to a meeting if those urges call somebody? But if you you can resist the urge with the support of your your community, with God's help, with with every the things that you have to build in, you actually begin to get better at it. And you can, and the waves become less powerful. But you know, in the first the first year, if you're a hardcore, you know, uh, alcoholic or, or drug addict, it's really hard, and uh, you need a lot of help. But it starts getting better. And uh, I, I was a cigarette addict, nicotine addict for a number of years, and a lot of my heroin. Uh, student said oh man heroin was easy compared to cigarettes yeah and um uh, i went through all that and uh, i i really get it but i really am done at this point and uh, i see somebody smoking i don't get it. oh can i have a cigarette it, it really disgusts me 
And yeah. I want to say something to them, which thank God I don't. But anyway, but it was a, it was a real battle, and I relapsed a number of times. Yeah, well, good for you for popping out on that. And it's, again, it's no small thing, right? So one one topic that also fits in here that I found very insightful, wonderful contribution in your book is your experience and your professional expertise with brainwave entrainments. Yeah. And and using again, I, I'm really big into this. So for my listeners, you they've heard me use this term before, the whole neurophenomenology aspect, you know, that what you do with your brain, that's a neural part, has an effect on your experience. What you do with your experience has an effect on your brain. So it's this two-way street. And and wonderful, really gifted thing about integral approaches again. And this is like bringing spirituality up to date in a certain sense. I'm sure if the Buddha had access to brainwave entrainment or some of these other agents, he probably would have been all over it. So talk to us a little bit about your experience with with BWE, how it works, um, how you might invite us to explore it. And then you're very generously going to give our listeners a, a, a kind of a demo of this. So I, I found this one of the richest parts of your books. Um, so talk to us a little bit about this. Again, this fits in beautifully within the upper left. And Can I hit, some, hit something else first? That is oh, really totally. I that. And I will definitely get to that because that's a huge, huge part of uh, my con- contribution to the recovery scene is using this technology. But one of the other parts of the integral map, uh, which we haven't hit on or may not have time, are the stages oh, of yeah. Okay, and, uh, you know, Spiral Dynamics, check it out, or Ken Wilber has his own version, and I've been working with this just as a human being, an observer of myself and others, and it's one of the most important things. Roger Walsh um, says that it's like the most important thing emerged out of psychology in the last 50 years, adult stages of development. So you start out, I'll go really quick, and it's yeah. in colors and all this, but you start out very, when you're an infant, you're, you're very primitive survival, like our ancestors a long, long, long time ago, 150,000 years ago, they keep pushing that back. And then you get into a magical kind of tribal, like uh, the toddler stage, where you know it's a magical world and spirits have to be propitiated and all of that, and you can start banding together in tribes. And then comes Red, which is angry leader, he who has power. It's all about control. Uh, yeah, look at look at uh, Vladimir Putin right now. He's a really good example of somebody at that level, emotional level, is very red. Uh, after that came Blue, which is when the great religious traditions began to emerge beyond shamanism, uh, uh, Christianity and Judaism, Judaism first, it was there first, and and the different things in the Orient and probably ending up with uh, uh, Islam. And all of these, these, uh, uh, this level of development is very good, really good controlling Vikings, you know, stop raping and pillaging. Okay, Jesus is here. He wants you to, you know, be different or something like that. And, and it's really good. The problem with that is though, there's only one truth, you know, and if you have it and you don't, I can treat you like you're less than human. You're an infidel or non-believer, however that goes. And then after that, a modernism began to emerge where uh, it wasn't, uh, you know, the bones of saints or scripture or any of that, that are, you know, magic statues uh, that showed us what to do but it was science and evidence-based 
uh, experiments that you could repeat over and over again, and you could start uh, building uh, a model of understanding somewhat how the universe works, which is really good. Unfortunately, it did away with uh, uh, the the baby and the bathwater uh, for religion, and it was rejected, and uh, that led to problems. And so that that can also lead to a disenchanted world, a uh, world where there's no spirit, no ultimate purpose. It's all just, you know, we're reacting to the our stimuli. And, and anyway, it's a very dark reality. However, it has brought so many gifts, like the science that you, uh, 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 of the fact that we're talking here, having this conversation, and people all the place are going to have it later. I mean, that's crazy. And I read one, one place that in, in first world countries, antibiotics, which, you know, they get a bad rap, has added, I don't know, average 30 years to each of our individual lives. Yeah. That's a lot of living. So yeah. after that emerged the green, the postmodern kind of what emerged in, in the 60s, you know, uh, love for the earth. Everybody's invited uh, uh, against racism, sexism, this isn't that and animal rights, uh, Native American rights, everybody's rights, the, the planet's rights. It's very sensitive. It, it's very uh, uh, brings great compassion and, and sensitivity to the world. But yet it has its own problems when you really can't uh handle things it's like green it's called it in spiral dynamics they're, they really don't know what to do with russia invading um uh the ukraine it's kind of like well maybe if they just knew that we really loved them they would right. stop firing missiles right. you know it's like no doesn't work. So it's really good to have that, but you have to move into what's called second tier yeah. when you start to put together all these different levels and all their strength and take out the parts that are uh, no longer serviceable. Okay. The good parts of, of traditionalism, the honesty, do the right thing, service, individuality, the brilliance of modern scientific worldview and all it's achieved, uh, the kind of the the ruthless power of red, that warrior self that sometimes comes, we need that at, at certain times. Uh, you're getting mugged by three guys in a, in a dark alley. You don't say, okay, let's stop. Can we hold hands a second? I'd like just to be here with you. <laughs> you're going to get murdered. Okay. And 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 then kind of the earlier primal stuff, which is what a lot of us rediscovered, the, the wisdom of our ancestors and our relationship to the earth and all other creatures. So that's all good stuff. We can put that together. But the reason I said this, uh, to add it to our discussion on integral recovery, is that this is this is so amazing. But when you um, start using, and say you have progressed in a pretty stable way into modern, you know, the scientific modern worldview. Excuse me. When you start using, you start going back down the hill instead of evolution you have devolution yeah and as you're living in a street in a cardboard box you're almost at a pre-human level of existence and it doesn't matter anymore you will still cheat kill sell your body do whatever it doesn't matter oh children i had children what? no i gotta get more drugs Okay. And, and, and that is a tragedy. What we see when people start getting sober in a good treatment center and with support, they begin to recover the lost ground 
quite quickly. Like, oh, okay, here's where I was. And then that's when you can look back and look at all the stuff you've done and go, oh, my God, what have I done? How the people I've hurt, the years that I've wasted, the gifts that I have that were squandered, you know, and it's good. It's good to feel those feelings. You don't just go, oh, it's okay. It's not really okay. It sucks. And feel the pain. And that becomes one of the things that often can help you from doing it again. Yeah. Because you just don't want to hurt people anymore. And that's a pretty high level of moral development. So you get there uh, back pretty quickly. And from there, because you know the models and you know that you're not the top of the food chain, uh, ethically or morally or spiritually, it's like, wow, I got a lot of work to do, which is great because it, uh, I think it was a Jewish mystic who said, it's good to know what's above you because it gives you humility, yeah. you know, and you have actually something to uh, to aspire to. Yeah. And, you know, that there, there's levels of myself that are wiser, more compassionate, more uh, effective. And how do I get there? Practice comes back to the integral practice. And, uh, I used to tell my students during the wilderness, I'd get out, how do you get to Carnegie Hall? Practice. You know, <laughs> they really got it. So, uh, so yeah, so you 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 lose in, in the progression of this disease, you dissolve, devolve in your, your emotional and spiritual status into just, uh, if it's not stopped into some kind of pre-human creature, okay? But there is hope. It's hope. It's not, it's not hopeless. You can take these people and they can go back and maybe sometimes there, there's a lot of uh, damage that's done that never be able to fix. But most of it, as with alcoholics, you know, the body can repair itself, you know, and you can you can uh, you can get better. So just to say that we have that that um, that developmental lens that we look through. So if you're a green uh, progressive uh, person and you're talking to a red uh, meth addict, and you just go, okay, brother, I know it's been bad. And I'm trying not to make fun, but you right. you approach them in this soft, you know, compassionate way and, you, you know, touch your shoulder. They're going to freak out at you. Who the F are you? And get out of my face and blah, blah. So you have to learn as a, as, as a provider to speak to people in the language of the level right. that they're at. That's right. That's huge, John. In fact, Thank you so much. I, one of the reasons I just temporarily backed away from the integral approach is because, again, it's such a incredibly wide body of teachings and and, and uh, aspects. And so the the stage developmental thing is absolutely colossal. And you just nailed several of the key points, in my opinion. One is, you know, the definition of skillful means upaya in Sanskrit. For me, it's not meeting people where you're at, meeting people where they're at. And that requires a tremendous sensitivity, profound, deep listening, and then therefore also in, in um, an actualization and not a dominating sense. So let me just toss this in very briefly. One of the issues I, when I first heard about this stuff, it's like, oh, this is classic Western patriarchal hierarchical BS, right? Well, then Ken, of course, in his comprehensive way says, well, there's a big difference between dominator hierarchies and actualization hierarchies. Colossal. So this is not a dominator hierarchy. This is an articulation of human development, cross-culturally studied for dozens, hundreds of years at this point, basically, and, and proven um, through countless studies. But the idea here is touching people where they're at, listening to them, speaking to them at their level, 
And then they're going to listen to you. And so this is the importance. It's not just theory. This is the prescriptive end of this descriptive approach. That's now right. you can you can use this prescriptively to what? To save lives. Say, exactly. Say, skillfully relate to other people and, and save their lives. But the other thing that is really very helpful, what you um, shared here as well, is how these agents, these drugs and whatnot, basically act as devolutionary drivers, that they basically throw us back down into the basement where all, like you mentioned, that's where the beasts live in the basement. Um, and the fact that we can then recognize that, but interestingly enough, even in fact, our, our mutual friend, Roger Walsh, I remember very clearly at the beginning of the COVID thing, we did this kind of big group webinar type of thing with a bunch of other people. And he shared studies when the world was falling apart, that according to these studies, that um, when things fall apart, the default is generally regressive and not progressive. Under we stress. Tend, we tend, exactly. We tend to just go down. And so therefore, again, this tremendous kind of explanatory power behind um, these stages and how they can really help us relate to ourselves. And so let me just toss this out to you. In your experience, when one actually progresses to, to second tier, and maybe we can say just a little bit about you intimated it, but maybe a little bit more articulation about the difference between first tier and second tier. When people actually enter second tier, are they, in your experience, somehow immune to these addictive principles or, <laughs> or, or can the tail continue to wag the dog, right? I mean, are you somehow, it doesn't matter how up, how far up you go, can the tail still wag the dog? No, the, the, the students that I got, no, I don't see there's any protection at all. Yeah. From you're intellectually getting to be second tier. I mean, that's a really good thing. And the world starts to be stitched back together again. It's amazing, but nah, you still got the same genes. And uh, you, in fact, you might have more brilliant excuses why you're okay. You know, the, 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 the addict mind spins stories and it will try to use any knowledge you have against you. So it, it doesn't seem to help. However, I have found that it seems to my, um, my integral friends that have come to me, they seem to progress further, more quickly. They just kind of get it. And they go, okay, I knew all this stuff anyway. So whether he's saying it or not, I knew this was basically what I got to do. So so the, the, the buy-in uh, is, is a little bit easier. And I, and I think it, it does make the journey, it does facilitate the journey of recovery. And the other thing that that you mentioned beautifully in your book that has to be mentioned here. It's very easy a lot when you when you deal with like we haven't even talked about the different types, the enneagram and all, all these other things. One near enemy of this level of articulation is reification, pigeonholing, sliding people into these things. And so, what you share in your book that is really brilliant, John, is you talk about these stages. They're not of people; they're within people. And this is really important because then this brings about a sense of empathy, compassion. That hey, wait a second, I have the capacity to be an addict. I have the capacity to be a Buddha or whatever. We understand the multitudinous display of the spectrum of our own identity. And that yes, for instance, we're operating out of this particular bandwidth, but hey, I, I like the Dalai Lama says, we're, we're in a certain way, we're all the same. We all have the same fundamental potentiality, either progressive or regressive. And therefore understanding that these stages are not of people, they're within people is really helpful because otherwise it's like, oh, I'm, I'm hanging out at teal or turquoise or whatever. I'm never going to fall back. Oh yeah. I mean, we all have the capacity Absolutely. to drop back into these lower bandwidths. And then conversely, we all have the capacity not to identify with those and, and also, leave, also come back up. 
So that I think is a really wonderful contribution in your book that I want to thank you for. I mean, just spot on. So anything else before, um, uh, anything we should say briefly about um, yeah. lines well, and types? Since we're doing such a great tour of this. Okay, well, uh, yeah, types, the, the ones... Um, the ones that I, we use most of the time were uh, the Enneagram. Yeah. And that's because I studied that in grad school. And Leslie Hershberger is a really good friend of mine. And she's a, a really amazing expert at it. And I learned even before integral recovery was even a thought, I would we'd be out, you know, hiking in the wilderness and we'd have to sit in an alcove while there was a blizzard going on. And I would start explaining to people the Enneagram, the students. And it's like, really? Oh my God, my dad is such a three and mom's a four. <laughs> you know, they just love it. And and they love people really like um learning about themselves. Yeah. You know, unless you're a four, then you're like, don't put me in the box. I am special beyond all reason, you know. <laughs> it's like, oh, you're a four. Oh, that really gets a bad. <laughs> so no, it's it's super helpful. And I think I think there's more studies to be done, but I think the different points, personality types keep showing up. Why it's so, I don't know, but it seems to work this way. Uh, are we'll use drugs for, for different reasons. Like if you're six, like me, it's probably calming your anxiety and your fear. Six is a very fear-based. Um, either you're phobic or counterphobic. I was more than your your counterphobic. I learned martial arts and learned how to shoot guns and was a soldier and did all these things and military policeman. So I could be tough enough to handle this unsafe world. So people might use it in different ways. And in these different points, there are uh, really unhealthy aspects of it, average and really healthy. So most addicts in, in the late phases of this disease are, are exhibiting all the negative aspects of it. So there's this thing where you go in and you everybody goes, you know, you listen to other people talk and you read the book and you start to self-identify. I don't have time to do that. So they would come in. I said, read chapter three, you know, and they said, you've been reading my mail? You know, it was like uh, really good. And we just cut to the chase because they were really exhibiting a lot of the negative aspects. And that's really clear. However, when when you do get to these higher levels, it's often harder to tell because you begin to take on the positive aspects of all the different points and you just kind of, you know, and uh, yeah, so the more of all people that I know, and I wouldn't even hazard a guess for you, by the way, uh, are, are a little harder, but at, at the more uh, dysfunctional levels, it's not that hard. It's pretty obvious to me anyway. Let me just share with our listeners as well. Um, when I first learned my Enneagram, Enneagram type, and I'm a, I'm a big, there's so much literature here. You know, Helen Palmer's, uh, I did workshops with her. She's a genius. She's a big integralist person. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've, I've been in seminars with her. She's a rock star. Almas's work, Facets of Unity. I mean, his work with the Enneagram is like, are you kidding me? And I have to share, when I first started looking at the stuff, I came in with a skepticism. Oh, here's another Myers-Briggs thing. I've done this at every work position. I cannot tell you the impact when I finally realized that I was a five, you know, I mean, I thought it was a three and I thought it was a one, but then when I read it and I, and I, I sat there, it was, it was a really interesting experience for me, John. It was a combination of complete elation and exhilaration. Like, Oh my God, somebody, how did they know? Right. How did they know that sometimes I like to take my phone off the hook so I don't have to connect to people. Right. 
so on one level, it looks like this is amazing. On another level, it was really humbling. I mean, I wouldn't say embarrassing, but incredibly humbling that I, I, I'm, I really slot into this five into a, in a, a level that's like, you got to be effing kidding me. And so again, this is we, listeners might wonder, oh, geez, uh, you know, I like I like the spontaneous display of mind and behavior. Well, that's fine, but one of the biggest issues with me as a psychonaut and especially an oneironaut is exploring this woolly, otherwise incredibly woolly, fuzzy thing we call the human condition, and in particular, our minds, our personas, and our being. And so for me, and again, this is the orange part, the rational part, looking into that. When I read this stuff, instead of like shrink-wrapping, pigeonholing, this is the genius of articulation. It's like, oh my God, it doesn't have to be a fog fest in there. I, I operate on these particular stage levels. And then there's the whole state thing. Then there's the line thing. Then there's the type thing. And for the listener, you go like, are you kidding me? Just I'd rather drink a beer or take a nap. No, look at this stuff because it will help you profoundly understand the way you work, bringing unconscious processes into the light of consciousness. That's a massive ingredient in liberation. And then just as importantly, it's not just for you. Just like we talked about earlier, understanding this will help you relate to others. So that jerk over there, well, they're not a jerk. We haven't even talked about this. They're a jerk because of your shadow work or an unwork. You know, you're projecting all this stuff, whether you know it or not, right? And so I want to emphasize this because otherwise listeners new to this going, what do you mean? Shadows, lines, levels, states, types, Lord, why does it have to be so complicated? It's not complicated. It's the human condition that's complicated. This is a level of articulation that can help you relate to your self-sense in a much more sophisticated way. And then also, just as importantly, relate with compassion, empathy, and understanding. Now I understand. I can story that person's existence. I can see why that person drinks. I can understand why they do what they do because I have this entirely new skill set that allows me to meet them where they're at. So I say that because this is not armchairing philosophy. This isn't sophistry. This is street value, cash value material that can really help you work with yourself and with others. And so that's why what you emphasize and write about in your book so beautifully, this is the best summary of the stuff I've ever come across, John. Yeah. Some of my my integral friends uh, called me lovingly, dumb it down Dupuis. (laughs) So anyway, uh, I I, I, I said, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, What was I going to say? You said so much there. Uh, Anyway, uh, I have one little story I want to tell. And by the way, yeah. to the BWE, this, and this became one of the kind of the, the the story that would help us to put it all together and why we're doing this. And so I, I think this is an old wisdom story. I don't know what tradition uh, it came from, but I, I learned it from a Native American uh, version. And there's this young man, and he has his dream. And in the dream... He sees these two powerful beasts, let's say dogs. One is a beautiful, noble-looking, you know, just gorgeous uh, dog. And the other one is like this junkyard, you know, spike collar, just foaming at the mouth, all this stuff. And they have this big, big, huge fight. And he he wakes up in the middle of that, and he's, 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 he's really flipped out. So he goes to his, his uh, grandfather, I don't know if his real grandfather, but... That's what we do in the Native American circles. Everybody's a nephew or an uncle or an aunt or, you know, it's great. 
clip. Right. Um, but he said, grandfather, I had this dream. I'm so disturbed. It just shocked me. And I, I just don't know what it means. So he said, well, grandson, tell me the dream. So he tells him the dream. And he said, uh, grandson, these two dogs are the two parts of yourself. One is noble and strong and good and a, a warrior to take care of his people and for the old people and the children and the women, everything a warrior is supposed to be. And the other one is just a savage beast who just wants to destroy and hurt and tear up whatever it gets a hold of. And uh, and he goes, wow, that's he's just like, damn, that's rough. He says, but don't worry, grandson, your good dog is going to win. He says, well. Okay, that's good. But how can you say that? He says, because you're going to feed the good dog. Beautiful. Wow. That's the story. That's recovery. Yeah. Yeah. Which which dog or I've heard it in terms of wolves, which wolf are you going to feed? Right. Right. Yeah. And the other thing I want to throw in that's beautiful. Thank you for bringing that. That's spot on. The other thing I wanted to say, and again, after we talk about um, brainwave entrainment, I want to then come back to the high level view of this stuff. Um, as an intimation are heading towards that, one of the things for me, I think is helpful to keep in mind, John, is that all these lines, level, stage, type, whatever, these are all colorings of consciousness. And so when we turn return later, I want to talk a little bit about the power of, of healthy reductionism. And on one level, and this again is really beautifully important, and what this means, because it's all a coloring of consciousness, when you're in a particular funk, and now this isn't just merely addiction. This can be related to depression. This can be related to any psychopathology. It's basically an exclusive identification or at least temporarily exclusive identification reified particular uh, contraction around a, a particular experience or state of mind. It's a coloring of the mind. It's a coloring of consciousness. And so if you understand this, then when you're in a total funk, you're like really depressed. If you can have this right view that like right now, my coloring is black. You know, like paint me black, right? My my, I am coloring consciousness black. And then what you could do then, and it's actually been a practice, my meditation masters told me this. They said, when you're feeling really, really, really low, bring to mind, remember those instances when you were feeling really, really, really high. When you're feeling really high, in those moments, remember, bring to mind those feelings when you were feeling really low. What's the same and what's different? And you will find that there's something fundamentally quite the same. And that's experience itself, irrespective of the coloring book, right? And so I think that helps reduce in a healthy way, simplifies, again, without the pejorative aspect of that level of simplification, that these are ways to understand both in all four quadrants, the way the mind consciousness is colored, phenomenologically, biologically, culturally, socially. And to me, I find that it can also completely understands this when he says, well, that represents the paper upon which the quadrants are actually articulated, right? So I, I think that's worth throwing into the mix because otherwise, again, it can be a little bit TMI for some folks. But I'm curious also if that lands and relates to your own experience. Well, I don't think anybody, including Kid Wilbur, got this in one day. You know, it, it takes like anything... Uh, that it's worth doing is worth doing well. And you were telling me about your expertise at the piano. God knows how many hundreds of thousands of hours you put in on that. That's why you're good today. So there's just, you know, baby steps going in the right direction. And you can think of this whole map as a, a OS, an operating system. Okay. It's not the data, 
but it helps you organize everything where it needs to go. It's like, oh, and and after a while, you just you don't have to, you know, oh, well, that's a quadrant. You just kind of see the things as they are. And pump, some people put it down, well, it's just the map. Don't confuse the map with the territory, which is so ridiculous. Have you ever done that? Have you had a roadmap and you thought, that's Paris? It's so small. Nobody thinks like that. But I want to get to Paris. This is how I'm going to have to do it. So the map has its, it helps you, it helps you to, to travel through the terrain. Yeah, and if you're in the wilderness, it can save your life. So maps are not to be dismissed, but just to make sure that that they're, they're you know, they have enough detail to cover all the things and see all the things that we need to see on the journey. And if you use it wisely, you know, if you don't, you know, put a big statue of the map and start bringing it flowers and get weirded out, you know, it, it can be a tool to help you grow. And uh, another thing I want to say, going back to these stages, when I started teaching this stuff at a, at a um, wilderness program where the staff were mainly green and postmodern progressive, and I started talking about these stages, hierarchical stages, they just don't like hierarchies. They're oppressive. It means I'm higher, I'm better than you. And of course, it could be used that way. Any Anything that humans can mess up, they tend to do that. But I started describing it as expanding circles of compassion. Exactly. And they were right with Bam, got it, you know, so. Spot on. And, and the other thing, again, just to, to say, this is why you may want to mess with this stuff. Here's the kicker, and you know this. We're operating with this outdated operating system, whether we know it or not. What this does is it updates. This is an update. Pops in, don't delay it, update it. Because here's the kicker. You're living out of these states. All the stuff we're talking about, whether you know it or not, this is at work now, whether you know it or not. And Ken writes about this beautifully. We're in prison, samsara. We're living basically, what is it, What is the data these days, John? 95% minimum of what we do is dictated by unconscious processes. Right. Well, this is the 95% is what comprises everything we're talking about at unconscious levels. So you are, whether you know it or not, you are imprisoned by these unconscious processes operating whether you know it or not. In Buddhist language, this is what it means to be asleep. So as Ken says, hey, Prison break, here's a good map. Then you can bring these processes into the light of consciousness, individuation in Jungian terms, relate to it instead of from it, because relating from it, that's no relationship at all, right? That's samsara. And so again, I want to say this, like, this is why you want to mess with this stuff. Because otherwise, if you don't, it's going to mess with you. It's right. already working underneath, controlling at all these levels, whether you know it or not. Just we're just bringing this up to the light of consciousness, so now you can relate to it, and then you have a choice. Then you can be free. Prisoners right. don't have a choice, right? And, and you don't you don't want to get into at this stage in your life. Well, maybe the time will come and you go. Yeah, it's about time to look into this thing. So just you know, just you know, trust yourself. And and uh, uh, at a certain point, it's very, very, very helpful, especially if you've been on a spiritual journey uh, like I had been most of my life, and of course, my my work in the world with addicts. One of the ways I look at this, John, is um, it's a form of uh, vipassana. It's a form of insight meditation, um, analytic meditation, where I think you can absolutely completely contextualize it um, in this regard, and therefore also bring about a more integral approach between East and West, because a lot of these contributions really do come from the West, um, using methods of analysis and statistics and whatnot. 
that basically aren't available to Eastern methods of, of, of um, personal inquiry and phenomenology and the like. And so to me, this is also integral in spirit that we can raise our gaze, look at all these different contributions, both from the East and the West. And we haven't really talked a ton about states. We can say maybe just a few things about states to say that's an Eastern contribution. Maybe just a teeny little bit about shadow work, because I think that's the last thing. Oh, there's one more. And then at least mention the, the five classic lines, right? It's like, oh, Yuvay, there's more. Well, all this stuff, again, has tremendous uh, applicability. So let's hit on those three just a little bit. Then we can talk about brainwave entrainment and then take it up to the 50,000. Okay. Sound like a plan? Sounds like a plan. So we were talking about states of consciousness, which is uh, uh, part of the map and how early on in, in my lifetime, we confuse states with stages. In other words, we have a LSD experience where we were one with God and it was all good. And we had these incredible visions and we thought we were enlightened. And then the drugs were off. Oops. Here I am. So Still that's, here. That's, that's very important. And, and I found this was probably the easiest thing in the world to teach addicts about uh, states because they spent their whole lives in the last few years chasing states. Yeah, when you get to that point, you know, right when the heroin was, you know, just that, oh, my God, it was so good. And and drinking all that stuff and the cocaine, uh, unfortunately, the, the effects begin to change and you can never quite get to that desired state or high. So you're trying to you try mixing drugs and more drugs and this and that and the other. And um, uh, it doesn't work. So what you don't want to be a prisoner to your states of consciousness. Now, healthy states are wonderful. Okay. And we should be grateful for them, but they won't last. You know, they'll come in and go through just like depression. It's not, not a life sentence. It's, it's a thing we move through. And um, so we, we cultivate positive states, but through our relationships, through our practices, through, uh, you know, listening to wise people, reading good books, you know, a good music, uh, all of this stuff. And, and, and they're, they're good, but just know that, that they come and they go. And, but when we start being ruled by, uh, states, that's when you become a prisoner and you become an addict and it could be sexual addiction. I mean, any kind of addiction, you know, it's the same thing. You're chasing the state. You become, you become a, literally a state junkie. Yep. And we're going to talk more about that later when I talk about how dangerous this is, where practitioners become spiritual state junkies. Sure. And that can really re, um, talk about devolve your path. So cool. We got states down, right? Oh, and, then, and then classically, right, just briefly, the classic classic states are sleeping, dreaming, waking, and then the fourth. Um, so just to throw that into the mix. So a little bit about just to be complete. Um, and thank you for this all started with your interjection of bringing the stages back into play. Uh, just a few words about lines and then a little bit about shadow work, because these are also especially shadow work. Whoa. Especially in the spiritual business. This is massively missing. So a little bit about those two. OK. OK. Well, lines is simply looking at, you know, lines that are uh, uh, not horizontal, but pointing up and down. Yeah, vertical. Yep. Vertical, thank you very much. Uh, and and they represent, the lines represent different human capacities or skills, all right? 
And we've picked a few that are absolutely essential for stable lifetime recovery. And and then the vertical lines are nice because you know you can you can look at it like really low. Like, oh my gosh. And you can kind of just intuitively do this. You don't need you know, a psychologist and, and whole batteries of tests to figure out, you know, it's like uh, uh, my mathematical line is really bad and you don't have me try to solve that calculus problem over there for me to figure that out. I got it. Okay. So, uh, so the, 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 the ones that, that, that are essential we found is kinesthetic, the body. Okay. Body. That's the vehicle that we run around in for our, whatever amount of time that we have. So to honor it, and to make it healthy and to make it a tool of our our higher self is about as good as it can get. Yeah, and it's good to look nice and look sexy and appear nice. There's nothing wrong with that. That's good. But even deeper than that, there's a need for our bodies to be healthy so that we can be of service. And, uh, of course, that's nutrition and... and uh, Exercise, yeah. Yeah, food and, and, and exercise, yoga... Uh, energy work, all kinds of things, uh, sports, engaging in. So that's very important. And usually if you're if you're a drug addict, it's way down. Of course, I work with some professional uh, football players. They were they were uh, doing drugs in order to keep playing, either to make their muscles bigger or overcome the pain and different stuff like that. But that's a that's another story. So uh, so you have the body. Then you have the mind. That's basically your intellectual life. You know what you know, and uh, we should uh, seek out things that are useful and helpful because we live at a time when there's also most infinite content on the internet. You can go on YouTube and just find out anything you want about anything. So, and you can get lost in that. Uh, so, what, what is going to make me uh, a better person? Uh, I used to think this before I quite figured it out. I'm going to live my life as if. I have something to do that matters. Okay. So I'm not going to do really stupid things. I did uh, cocaine twice. And second time I was like, I can't do this anymore. I love this. You know, this is ridiculous. No, thank you. And um, so to, to listen to wise people, to ask questions, to read the great works of literature, to study history and science and psychology and spirituality and mathematics, all these things. However, it works. It's very important because if you if you fill your mind with garbage, uh, you'll get you know garbage in, giggle right, Gar- garbage in, ga- garbage out. So the mind is, and it's not the enemy. The mind is a tool that's like like nothing else that we discovered in the universe thus far. I haven't run into ET yet, so. So it's it's something very precious. And I think at Green and Progressive, sometimes we think that we just stop thinking. And that's the whole story, you know. And you stop thinking, you're enlightened. Could be just dissociated. And by the way, fives are easier to do that than others because you can just right. dissociate like anybody's business. Uh, okay, so uh, the body, the mind, the emotional interior self. And that is... All your all your stuff. It feels like being alive, and your 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 wounds, your your loves, your hatreds. What bores you? What turns you on? Your theories. You're working on, on all all the stuff, you know. And every night when we sleep, I'm, I'm speaking with the dream master here. Often we kind of reprocess and get rid of all that stuff that we collected during the day. So it's like sweeping up and, and throwing it out the door, and then 
you have the powerful life-changing uh, dreams that are there to direct us and work through things. So included in that line, it's a big line, but or we could even get it. Oh, let's just stick it there is the shadow. Yeah. As we were discussing earlier. And these are parts of yourself that have tremendous power that you are not aware of. And often as in a case with trauma, you, you split it off. And I mean, that's an incredible uh, a tool to survival, right? If you're being raped or you're being attacked or something like that, you can split that off and put that side because you need to get the hell out of there and take care of yourself and, you know, get this goon or something like that. You can't just freeze up. But at some point, you, just, you know, you're talking to people. I don't, I don't feel anything. Okay. Well, you do. And, and we have, we have a mechanism that allows us to put these things in the basement, you know, and we can lock them up and the more unpleasant and the more awful they are. And the more contrary to our own ethics, the more we'll keep them in there. Uh, but the problem is, 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 is shadow does not go away. It just starts controlling things from the basement and it's it's coming up in the living room and in the bathroom and the front yard. And uh, I think a lot of uh, one of the causal aspects of addiction is unprocessed shadow. You bet. You know? And that you're, you're trying to keep that down. You don't want to feel it. You want to numb it. And uh, that can be a big cause. So getting exploring the shadow and becoming aware of it. It's like, oh, wow, this is like controlling my life. Yeah. So even the intellectual uh, realization of shadow work is good. See, the mind is good. And uh, but there's often also a kinesthetic bodily release that has to happen. But you really kind of need both. And uh, they might not happen at the same time. But even if you started to get aware of it intellectually, that's a step in the right direction. But don't think that you're you know, you're done yet. You know, now, you know where to go. And I know you know lots about this stuff. So what would you like to Oh my gosh. Well, again, it's, it's just colossal. Just a couple of things, because this alone is a, a, a conversation in itself, but the relationship of shadow work to the overarching notion of projection and how it is that we're always, in fact, I think it was Ken who said in Spectrum of Consciousness, his first book, an amazing line, when a situation affects you more than it informs you, which like happens all the time, you're probably dealing with a projection. And so you just you just put that on your forehead or on your fridge, and is that a humbling revelation or what? I am projecting all the time. Shadow work just worked with it in particular bandwidth. But just to keep it somewhat contained, say just a teeny bit again about not again, but introduce the three two one shadow working method because it's like okay, well that was great, but what do I do with it? And so the three two one method is brilliant. So simple. Um, may not be easy, but brilliant. So maybe just a little bit about that so people can say, oh, now I now I, now I can work with reowning these projections. Yeah. And if you if you uh you know find yourself reacting more than as uh, an average sane person would would think is a, a an emotional reaction, like somebody bumps into you in line and you punch them, you know, I mean that's a that's some shadow stuff there for sure. You know, or or you know, your kid just drops gravy and mashed potatoes in his lap, you know, instead of just, I love you, son, you know, you, you know, you, you go nuts. So the, the shadow is always there and it's, it's, it pops out and can cause great, great harm. But the three, two, one shadow work I took in, uh, I, I talked about my book. I created this one. 
they were doing something at the Intracle Institute. Oh. That was and I thought I knew who I was hitting. So I invented my whole, my own one. And then I found out it wasn't anything like Diane Hamilton was doing. So it was, uh, but it seemed to work. And uh, so we're using, using uh, brain entrainment technology because it takes us into these lower, more receptive states. Theta is a good one for dreams and these images and all this stuff to work out. So let's see. Okay. I'll work myself here. Uh, okay. Is John despairing? Hopeless John. That's when I'm depressed. That's what I am. So uh, I'm I'm looking at this image and it could be, you know, an animal, everything. In my case, it's just me. And I'm just like, so I'm just looking at it. Like John feels so, so depressed. So hopeless. Wow. Look at that. Look how he holds his body. Look, you know, it's just, uh, and so you just kind of, Feel into that third person looking as as that shadow part of yourself, that lost part of my soul as other. Okay. And then as you know, you continue the brain entrainment and you okay. And you can ask for help, by the way. I think there there are powers in the universe that um that are us and are available to us. It's like, okay, thanks, God. Help me with this next step. And so, then, just, so, John, that's three, just so we articulate with people. What you just oh, yeah, mentioned yeah. is three. That was yeah. part three. That's a third person. Yeah. My uh, my shadows is part as other than me. Yeah. I'm looking at it as an object outside of myself. Second person is when I start conversing with this shadow X, uh, myself, and I give it a name. Uh, lost, despairing John. How are you doing? Not good. Uh what are you feeling? Well, like my name, I feel lost and despairing and hopeless. And that uh, my life has been a, just a mess. I've never really done anything that matters. I don't feel like I have anything I can contribute. I don't know what the hell I'm doing here. And, you know, and, uh, okay, thank you. Yeah. And what else? And, and you know, this and that. And so I just let them do that and at the same time as the the other person in the conversation i'm starting to kind of feel what lost despairing hopeless john is feeling starting to enter into my own body okay and then i'll you know just uh, i'm my own therapist so is there anything else that i need to hear that you need to tell me um I just feel lonely. Okay, so you feel lonely. All right. I get it. Thank you, Lost Despairing John. So look, now, Lost Despairing John, I want you to come home, brother. You take him and you bring this, this portion of yourself that you were talking to in, in, in this conversation, and you just completely own it. You know, this is my lost, despairing, hopeless self and yeah. you feel it in your body and you just stay with it and you say uh, one of the things i says thank you teacher you know because i know it's there to teach me and uh and 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 sometimes it it begins to shift quite easily sometimes it shifts just a little bit uh but even if it's a it's a bit of a shift afterwards you're going to feel that something is useful has been done. There's a little more energy. And other times you can just 
you know, the, the, the feeling, usually it's around the heart where I get a lot of my stuff, you know, solar plexus maybe. And, and it just tightens up and gets stronger. And I just, I breathe into it. My wife said she used to see me like sitting up in bed doing this work and I would just be, my whole body would be trembling. Like she knew I was going through something heavy. And then it begins to lift and it's like, like the fog, you know, foggy morning, you can't see anything. And then you start to see a little bit of light coming through the fog and you go, nah, I'm just projecting. That's not real light. Then, oh yeah, it gets brighter. And the thing gently lifts. And then you, uh, you know, you get through it. And this is something you can do with different aspects of yourself. Uh, I mean, the human soul, look what we're going through as a human family, you could do that kind of work. But, but when you do that, um, you're lighter, you're a bit happier. It's if some of this energy that's been locked up in my deep despairing self has been released and that can be released to reach out to others, to play music, to be good to my dog, uh, you know, whatever it is, there's more psychic, spiritual, emotional energy available to me. And if I, I don't deal with that stuff, that stuff that, that we hide in the shadows is going to, wreck our lives and it causes uh it can cause physical disease emotional disease relational issues professional issues on and on and uh needs to be confronted and that's one of the brilliant things about ken's model is he would not leave the shadow out because this whole beautiful thing if the shadow is not accounted for and honored and and given a chance to to express itself in a way that doesn't hurt yourself or anybody else um the whole th the whole the whole thing just can not work, collapse. That's one of the best summations of, of the 321 process that I've ever heard, John. It's, it's terrific. Um, and one thing that immediately came to mind is it's, it's like, what did uh, James Joyce once say? Mr. Duffy lived a short distance from his body. What came to my mind here is is when we have really intense experiences, right? There, there's something going on, if, especially if we can't, we can't contain it. Our hearts, minds aren't big enough. Something in us that says, I'm out of here, right? And so what do we do? We project out of here. And when we project out of here, it's not three, two, one. It's one, two, three. The experience is too intense. So it's like, I'm out of here. So we throw it out and again, plaster it out to others. And that's why we're affected by others because now they have what we're repressing, right? I'm not a jerk. I'm not angry. That person's angry, right? It's it's brilliant. It's like, it's almost mathematical. And so what I, I haven't thought about this before. Basically, one, two, three is an out-of-body experience. Three, two, one is a back-into-body experience. And then this is where the right view, and it, it takes a little bit of courage, because what, what, is, what does it entail? You have to return to the beasts in the basement. You have to return to that experiential intensity that you weren't able to digest and metabolize to begin with. And therefore, if you don't have the right view, you're going to FedEx yet again. If you have the right view, here again, everything we're talking about today, right view, you take the out-of-body experience, which leads to a disingenuine life. Now, three, two, one is I am going back to body. I'm going back to life. And then when that emotion, you return to it, you now have the structure. I'm going to stay, like, like Suzuki Wushi said, don't be a smoky bonfire. Be a good bonfire. Cremate your experience as you live it. We like to smoke. We like to project. So three, two, one, I hadn't thought of this before. Three, two, one is a return. It's a, it's a re-embodiment experience back into ownership of the feeling. 
And then the practice is to stay with that. Because like we talked about earlier, it's a state. It will self-liberate. If you have the capacity to just be there, let the fire have its way, Dr. John, and it will liberate. But for most people who don't have the capacity, what do they do? They hit the eject button. They project. They're out of themselves. I'm out of here. The whole shadow thing starts. And, and this goes, again, way beyond what we can talk about here. But you take this even deeper, John, to the fundamental phenomenology of projection altogether. I would argue that this is what creates the sense of externality, period. Yeah. The very sense that there is an other is based on this phenomenological process. And so I, we don't have time to go into that. But this is another iteration of that profound kind of approach. And so thank you for this level of insight. I hadn't clicked on this before. Um, so well, that, that was well said, Andrew. You said a lot. That was really good. And, and just one one little last thing is that that ability to dissociate is a short-term survival skill. Exactly. It, you know, if you're in an emergency situation, you just can't collapse and, and start hugging yourself and you know on the ground. You've got you've got to save somebody, you've got to save yourself, you've got to move, but you've got to go back. And you have to process that, put that in the bonfire. And uh, I mean, it's it's I can see evolutionarily why that was necessary. But if we we don't go back and deal with things, problems. Exactly. And then just briefly for my listeners, um, in Hindu Buddhist language, again, a little bit outside of what we can talk about here. But this is this is where the samskaras are born. This is right here. What we're talking about with John and that profound descriptive tool from the Eastern wisdom traditions, this is the genesis of the samskaras that basically form us. I mean, the samskaras are basically what form us. And, and fundamentally, these drivers are there creating, bringing you know, this formless awareness into form based on these profound habitual patterns. So I better pause because otherwise we're going to go up. This is such a great set of topics, John. But what a wonderful overview. Now we've really hanged it these amazing contributions from the integral approach. And now maybe listeners can say, okay, now I'm starting to see, whoa, not only does this apply to the recovery project in this more colloquial sense, but is in, in a direction I want to take it right after we talk about brainwave entrainment, because I want to get there first. I want to go just even a tad bit deeper to talk about some of the fundamental principles behind everything we're talking about. But before we go there, let's circle back. Um, I, I sent this out about 45 minutes ago. Talk to us about the role in your experience of brainwave entrainment, how it works, the 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 fact, uh, the promise and peril, if there is, um, of this approach, and then um, yeah, basically how it's how it's played out in your life and and also with working with others. Okay. <clears throat> um. Well, in 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 the twelve steps, step eleven says sought through prayer and meditation to increase our conscious contact with God, seeking only His will and the power to carry it out. So right there in the 12 steps, I say, you better be doing prayer and meditation. And I don't think, I mean, I've been a lot of, you know, I know a lot of people in, that are working the steps have been in a lot, a lot of meetings. And basically prayer is generally kind of a petitionary thing. Mm -hmm. Lord, thank you for keeping us sober today and help me to stay sober the rest of the day. And, you know, and it's like, good, there's nothing wrong with, uh, uh, you know, honoring that and, and reminding yourself. And reminding God of it, he's reminding, I, I don't think he does. Uh, but the deep interior transformational prayer and meditation is what step 11 was getting at, because it's those interior places is where we find our despair, but we also where we find our light. 
we find our higher power and we find our connection to all things. So that is very important. However, if you're trying to uh, teach meditation to uh, a bunch of addicts and, and alcoholics that just, you know, first few days of not having booze or drugs, and you try to sit there and have them watch their breath, they go crazy, you know? Uh, I thought it was a little easier in the wilderness, but still, it was very hard. And uh, so when I discovered this technology <clears throat> many years ago now, I, uh, I first of all, I had this huge, personally, I had this huge awakening, enlightenment, class five, mystical, ex spiritual experience. And I was like, wow, that's pretty powerful stuff. And am I enlightened? It took about a half hour. And uh, the answer is no, and no. But it was it was a it was a powerful, powerful um, experience that has stayed with me and kind of gave me the 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 spaciousness to go back and deal with a lot of my demons that were keeping me depressed and keeping me barely barely in the game of life. So after that, it seemed I was I could just open up and let what would come up would come up and it took me about six months, I think, to get through um the really core, core stuff. And and but I knew because of that first experience that um uh, uh, I was getting well, you know, because it would come up and then like my body would re, you know shake or I'd feel this pain and it's like, you know, party go to hell with this. Ah. But I knew there was some angel of my better nature that was whispering me, you know, this is exactly where you need to go, brother. So uh it really helped me. And of course, wow, man, maybe I could use these with my uh, my students, you know, the people I'm trying to help. What a, what a big step forward. So that's when when I started using it. And uh, um, there's not too much negative. You know, I don't I don't know if uh, it works well or is indicated for people who are schizophrenic. Mm -hmm. I've never seen I've never seen it seem to help at all. But, you know, that that is an area that I know very, very little about. So I shouldn't be. But for your run-of-the-mill depressive and addicts and even bipolar, which is one of the more difficult things to deal with it, time and time again, people have reported that it's really helped. And I had, I had a version of bipolar. It wasn't the classic one, but it was like I'd be up in the morning and then the, the darkness would hit around noon and last till the sun went down. It was brutal. But it, it it helped me. And I never, you know, I didn't think I was, you know, the Messiah or, you know, spin off in any of these stuff that sometimes happen in more classic bipolar stuff. But it seems to really help with that, too. And, you know, in bipolar, it seems that the pressure builds up inside until it blows up and you do all this stuff. Well, if you can keep the pressure down and keep it regulated through an interior practice, it seems to do a lot of good. At least that's how I've seen it in, in the people that I've worked with and in my own experience. So, um, yeah, I said, man, this is, this is step 11 on steroids. And I went, maybe that's not the appropriate way to say, you know, <laughs> this is a drug problem anyway. So, um, and sure enough, it, it turned out that it was, a, it was a great aid. And, and not only that, we're giving people a practice they could take with them. You know, you're, you know, you you have your temple in your smartphone, you know, and you have your tracks. And so you can use it when you're you're going to work. Or uh, I recommend for all human beings that they they meditate and use this stuff early in the morning, you know, before you check your emails and the local news and blah, 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 blah. You know, it's just like 
spend that time, you know, coming together and getting yourself spiritually uh, uh, aligned. And for me in my practice right now, I've been doing this for God knows how many years, a lot, um, that prayer and meditation have kind of become the same thing. And that meditation is my preparation for prayer. That helps me to slow down and stop the incessant chatter and or then you just start looking at the chatter. Well, there it is again. So you have a little distance instead of being your thoughts, you're watching your thoughts. And then after a while, they come down and you can have stillness. And at that point, it's like, okay, spirit, God, I'm ready. Uh, I'm just going to shut up now. Seriously, I'll shut up. He says, yes, John. Anyway, and, and if you need, you know, if you need to tell me anything or healing thing, I need to let go or do anything, just and anything I left out, this is your time. I'll shut up now. Yes, John. Okay. You know, and then I do it. So, so that has really, 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 really been been a great help. And the fact that I can contact, you know, God, and I don't know God's a lot of problems with that word and everything, but I say it now, you know, because, and I, I went through problems with that for years, but, but that higher power, whatever you want to call it, spirit, great mystery uh, inside of us, it's, it's usually comforting. Yeah, because you know, no matter what, it's it's always it's always right there. And Rumi said, "God is closer to you than your eye, eyelash on your eyeball." Yeah, than you are yeah. to yourself. Yeah. yeah. So, John, talk to us a little bit about. Um, many of my listeners will be new to this. Are there how many varieties are there of of brainwave entrainment? I mean, are, are they like prescriptively given now based on? people's predispositions and all the things we just talked about, or is it kind of a one size fits all practice? And how, how would one get into this, explore it safely, um, properly? And, and then that, you're kind of the mechanistic. Um, yeah. Well, well, basically what happened, they started figuring this out back in the seventies that meditators were actually changing their brainwave uh, states through their practices, their discipline. So they would hook up, you know, swamis and, and nuns and monks and, you know, people that meditated all the time and they would go, okay, it's happening. I'm going in and they could see that they were taking their brains down into alpha or theta or delta or something. And, and it's like, wow, we thought this was all just mumbo jumbo. Right. So that, that was a big, uh, a big step forward. And then back in the seventies, I in my book, read the book, uh, the doctor that discovered that you could take two sounds one in this ear, one in that ear. And by balancing those, say, 100 and 150, it would split the difference of whatever that was and, it train, and train your brain to the difference. At least that's how, how we understood it at the time. So, and this is stuff, you can use it and, you know, whatever technology you hook it up to will affirm. And uh, there, there's, uh, there's a great uh, research uh paper that was done it was part of her doctorate degree it's on our app where she reviewed all the latest tech, uh studies which have been peer-reviewed etc and they couldn't be over three years old you know so <laughs> i don't know why research is bad after four years but anyway and and she she's found all of these things and the, when it didn't work seemed to be the problem is he didn't do it long enough hmm. so it takes it takes um probably about eight to 10 minutes to really have that that shift happen. And I, I think if you're, you use them a lot and you're really clear, you can work with it. It doesn't take that long, but it takes a while. And um, uh, there, there's different brainwave states. We talk at beta, which is like, you know, run around the world and multitask and all this stuff. It's pretty, pretty fast 
uh, brainwave. Under that is alpha. And for years, everybody thought that was like the, the ideal, the meditative brainwave, uh, you know, that you wanted to get to. And it's a little slower and you can come really uh, focused. And, you know, when you're like, you're in the Lord of the Rings reading the book and you're just there in Middle Earth, you know, you're probably, your brain's probably doing a lot of alpha, right? Because you're just there. And under that uh, is theta. And that that's where the, the the dream world comes in and the rapid eye movement and, and, and this, this uh, you know, visions and dreams and, and our unconscious material, kind of the unconscious and conscious come together and very, can be very fruitful um, for, uh, as a meditative practice. Under that delta, and uh, that is even slower. You know, think of waves in an ocean, big waves, a lot of power. And it takes you down to a really, a really deep level where you can, you know, do the work. I mean, th these things are tools to get us in the space where we can do the spiritual work. They really, 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 really help. And uh, as with my students before this technology, they just couldn't get it. And their minds were, I'm not going inside. What a wreck that is. And, uh, uh, Ken Wilber, he said one time, it took him five years of doing meditating two hours a day to start feeling the difference. I was like, God, is that heroic or what? <laughs> no way I could have stayed that long. So as mentioned, I had a big, you know, big, big thing right at the beginning, which was kind of often if, if you're going to be an initiator, it seems the universe will give you a very powerful experience. So you can, you know, go and, 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 you know, help other people. So, um, and then under that is is epsilon. Yep. Even slower. And God, there is one more that is uh Omicron. Omicron? Is it Omicron? Oh. Is it Omicron? I can't remember. They do I do know epsilon. And then there's gamma on the other end. Uh, the, anyway, the, yeah. the only one of a it looked for uh let's see, infinity is the name of the track, and it actually goes there, and it's kind of it's kind of like delta wrapped in a gamma burrito that's how it's <laughs> so that's it's awesome and, and then there is gamma which is like way over here 4200 yes really intense and they started seeing it first uh significantly in the brains of buddhist monks who were doing compassion meditations so it seems to be good for compassion but it also really helps you process lots of stuff quickly and effectively and so, you know, that's good to keep your mind in shape if you're writing a book, all that. However, you don't, that's the one you probably don't want to do more than, you know, three times a week, you know, because it's, it's a, it's a big, you know, it's going to be really stimulating and, you know, doing these tracks. And it's, again, I mentioned this earlier, it's like half science and half art. So we have these great creators that make this and some of it's, it's music, some of it's sounds of the ocean, nature sounds some mix thereof and sometimes you you would train the brain to several different uh brainwaves at the same time depending on on what it is and if you go wherever you get your uh your apps just put in i awake and it'll come up and that's our app and you can look through it and see all the different tracks there's a whole bunch of them now and uh you, you push the button on it and it'll tell you uh what they're for if there's a guided meditation what brainwave states are used and what it's recommended to do so yeah, there, there's a whole bunch of different ones. And I think it seems to me, it's like when you go to the gym, you know, you want to uh, change up your your workout practice every once in a while because your body gets, a, 
just used to it and adapts to it. So if you want to grow and change, you keep adding these things. And uh, I, I, I do it pretty much intuitively at this point. I said, God, what do you want me to listen to today? You know, and, and ding, something probably will come up and uh, I'll work with one track for a while. And then when I feel it's time to move on to something else, I do. Really just wonderful. It's, it's really a kind of a technological downshifting, isn't it? I mean, going, you're basically going down and fundamentally hitting neutral and then dropping all the way below that into um, the states that are associated with Turiya, Dharmakaya in, in, in Eastern language. And here, and it's good for not just the traditional things that meditators want. It's like finding God or finding emptiness or whatever that is, whatever state, you, you know, the tradition says. But it's good for just thinking sometimes. If you have issues you got to deal with, like, it looks like I'm headed for a divorce. Am I supposed to do this? You know, is there anything I can do? Or is this just, you know, you get down and, and you you can kind of just ask the questions and, and the answers will begin to kind of materialize. It's also very good for uh, creativity. Yeah. And uh, I haven't had writer's block in a long, long time. And I do a lot of writing with with uh, all the things that I do. And it, it just it just really comes through. And here's an interesting tale. I started becoming very involved in supporting Ukraine. And my my friends over there and, and raising money and trying to do everything I could because just such a horrible, horrible thing that's going on over there. Yeah. These people yeah. they're completely innocent. They didn't do anything to deserve this invasion. It's just Putin wants this big empire and he's willing to kill as many people as it takes to get it for him. So I, I, I've been a musician, as I told you before we turned on the video, and uh, I used to write a lot of songs, but I hadn't done it in years. And I wanted to write something that would help me express all these emotions, you know, my anger, my my admiration, my all of this stuff around this Ukrainian uh, invasion situation. And if you go to Apple Music or Spotify or CD Baby, but go to either one of those and just put my name, John Dupuis. I'm the only John Dupuis ever wrote a song. It'll come up there, Ukraine, and you can listen to this song. And that was, I definitely, I definitely... Uh, you know, credit where credit's due to to the the practice and kind of trusting the the creative interior development. And I didn't, I couldn't remember how I'd written songs years ago. I'd written some pretty good ones, and I wrote this one, and I still don't know quite how I did it. It's just the chorus came, and then though it took a while for that. Just A minor, Ukraine, A minor, Ukraine came through, and then. Uh, um, got a melody for the verses and the verses came out really, really easy where all the things that I've been hearing from my friends in Ukraine and on the news and all this stuff. And I put it together in, in a way that, uh, my Ukrainian friends love it, you know, because it really honors them and, and what they're doing. So go check that out. And that's a product, I think of this, of this, uh, integral practice that I engage in. That's fantastic. I'll definitely check it out. We'll we'll also provide commentary link to it as well. But so so briefly on this, how do you respond? Uh, I, I, from my own experience, when I first heard about this, I realized how traditional ossified I became as a kind of a classical practitioner meditator. As I like, ah, my first response, that eventually I, I looked back and realized how proprietary it was. This cheating, right? Cheating. So I, when I I can't take this with me, right? I, I can't take this when I die. I can't take this into the whatever. So how do you respond or do you? Does it mean anything to you when, when people say, ah, this is this is just the, the Western silver bullet quick fix to enter these 
um, states, which sometimes can actually be samadhi states. I mean, you can enter really yeah, profound states of absorption. And so, well, so how do you respond to the Western critique or the Eastern critique? Is like, ah, this is just cheating, right? Well, it's I not should, addiction. First of all, okay. Uh, so you don't have to worry about that. I got to listen to my, you know, uh, profound meditation program. No, it's not like that. And I think, uh, you know, basically the uh, the ultimate understanding of enlightenment is uh, there is only God and thou art that. Okay, and I, I left off the story to get to that, but there it is. So this is obviously a product of God also. So if the universe is creating uh, tools for us, because we live in these highly stressful times, we're being bombarded by stimulation and information and everything that's going on. There's so many of us now, and and there's you know the, the the tension between the free countries and the dictatorships and oil, the whole meta crisis. Uh, yeah, we could use some help, and uh, I think this is also God. And uh, if you if you just handle like that with gratitude and humility, it's great. But if you're, too, you know, and if you don't want to do it, then don't do it for crying out loud. But, you know, maybe give it a shot, see if it helps. And again, returning it, it's it's another wonderful application of the integral, in this case, upper left, upper right, right? And you're basically engaging the integral yes. approach. Yes, and it is changing your brain materially. I mean, they, you know, you could see the changes in, in just in meditators. You know, they have the, the, the frontal part of the brain is really developed and there's all these things going on. So, uh, also, I find because I've been doing this for years, I can go and just, you know, go to church or, or go to a, a Zen temple or whatever and just go into really deep meditation really easily without the technology because my brain has been worked and trained. It's really nice. You know, I love to go to church now, you know, uh, what, you know, whatever brand. I mean, I'm sure there's some I wouldn't enjoy, but I can just get into a state of prayer and praise. And uh, I have some stories about that. But anyway, I'll spare you. But yeah, it, it lasts. It's not just, yeah. uh, it's not just you know, uh, dependent on the technology. Once you train your brain, and if you want to start trying to do traditional, at a certain point, your inner sage will start squaring you away and telling you what you need to do and everything. So don't be too judgmental, but work with it. It's another. It's another principle, and I hadn't, I hadn't thought about this before. It's it's a it's another um, instance, or in our conversation, first instance of the principles of neuroplasticity where basically you tend to have this top-down thing. Oh, what I do with my mind changes my brain. Well, this is a bi-directional process. Neuroplasticity works, works both, both ways. So now you're working with your brain. Guess what? Now it's bottom-up. Works up, changes the mind. And so to me, it's like, whoa, now like, like this isn't cheating. This is just contemporary spirituality. And I love what you said about this is another yet another manifestation of spirit or God. It's like, like, why would you somehow cardin this off and say, ah, that's not part of it? So that's a wonderful also interjection, right? So, yeah, super. And I also will share with my listeners that John graciously will have it added to the end of this podcast, has graciously um, offered to give us a sample of this IOA technology. And yeah, so, let, let, let me say a little bit about this one. It's called Intracol. Uh, no, Deep Deep Recovery is the name deep of the Yeah. And it has, uh, uh, Lee Spusta and I, and I actually created this even before I awake. It was my first uh, uh, experimentation at this, and I wanted I wanted tracks to help my students' addiction, and so I didn't. I'd never done a guided meditation, so I got five books on guided meditations, and I was getting ready to read them. 
And then finally, I just put on the headphones, listening to speak to Lee's very, very powerful entrainment uh, sounds, and it this channel, the whole thing just came right out. And five books in here, and just all I had to do is shut up and sit down and write it down. And um, uh, yeah, I, I think it's a very, it's a very spiritual, loving. Whether you're an addict or not, there's things that are being processed there that every human being needs to do. And if you don't want to listen to the guided part. There's another track where it's just the music itself, which is a, it's a brilliant uh, 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 a bit of entrainment and, and can really help. And remember, this stuff is not the magic bullet. It doesn't do the job. It's just a tool to facilitate, yeah. you know, a very difficult journey and give you, you know, 25 percent, you know, better chance of getting there, which is enormous. You know, uh, so but you still have to show up. You still have to do your part. You still have to develop a practice. And there's there's I mean, to think of all the energy and the money and just the, the, all the hurt and stuff that got you to the point in your addiction that you're that you're in a treatment center. And, you know, if you put like a third of that into getting better, you'd probably do pretty well. So it's it's going to it's going to take some time and and it teaches you discipline and it's a great tool. And uh, you learn how to meditate using it. And sometimes you'll you'll find maybe the traditional way you learn, which is really great, by the way, if you're trained in a tradition, uh, people say that really helps them. It doesn't negate. Yep. Your brain has already made that kind of advancement through your years of practice, and it meets you where you're at, and you can move on from there. So um, our interiors are infinite, you know, and these help us explore them and and come back hopefully better more useful, more compassionate, wiser people. Fantastic. I can't wait. I can't wait to share it. So if, if you have just a teeny bit more energy, I wanted to go to the one last thing that I really wanted to address your way. And sure. I, want to, I want to preface this with a couple personal stories and, and also my viewer on this and just see how this lands with you. In, in Buddhist cosmology, well, let, me, let me start with my story. So let me start with my story. So when I did my three-year retreat um, over 20 years ago, for the first two months, John, it, it was hands down the most difficult experience of my life. I mean, I, I, I was I was walled off in a compound, you know, completely walled off from the world, no contact. One one day a week, we got some mail. That was it, some food. Um, I was in a, in a retreat center. I was in my little room, the size of a closet, and then I was in a little meditate, a little literally meditation box, which everybody goes, "Well, that's interesting." I mean, I slept in it. I spent basically 18 hours, 19 hours a day in this box, which I, I playfully came to call ego's coffin, right? So so I was like, I was just like basically in a straitjacket. And what, what became one of the most insightful, painful experiences of my life that I want to use as a platform was this, I felt like I was in battery acid. It was like unbelievably difficult for me. And after, you know, like a month of this, I'm going, I, I started to like, like, why is this so hard? And, and then what came to my mind in a series of insights was I realized, again, I've never been a formal substance abuser, but I, I'm going to talk to you about now how I, I am a substance abuser. Um, I realized, oh, my gosh, this, I'm in detox. I, I'm, I'm going, and what I'm feeling here is my withdrawal from samsara. And then, and then I thought about it. I said, wait a second. Okay, here I am. I basically can't move. It's like savasana forever. I'm I'm basically corpse pose, right? I can't move. And what I realized is like, oh my gosh, this is this is removing me from the substance to which I am addicted, which is movement. 
And interestingly enough, in tantric language, thought is actually defined as movement of mind. And so that's when I realized, oh my gosh, I am a thought junkie. I am a movement junkie. And movement is also the word that's connected to karma. Lay literally means action. Action. I'm addicted to movement, to action. And so then I realized, oh my gosh, I am in a freaking detox center here. And it really felt like it. I mean, I was really hurting. And so then, you know, I, I started to put all the stuff together. And this is what I want to throw you away. Um, in Buddhist cosmology, we live literally, there are three realms, the formless realm, the realm of form, and the realm of desire, passion. We live in the realm of desire. And desire is basically what moves us. And so in stronger terms, we live in the realm of addiction, desire gone bad. And so then I started to put all this stuff together. It's like, hey, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. I am an addict. We're all addicts. It's just a matter of degree and what we're addicted to. I'm addicted to this crap back here. I'm an intellectual junkie. I'm addicted to ideologies and thought. I'm a spiritual junkie. I have all these things that like, hey, man, I I may not be a, a substance abuser in that sense, but I abuse the substance of thought. I abuse these other forms, basically. So it's it's the abuse of form, right? And so I realize now that the entire spiritual path, sometimes in stronger language, it's called death and slow motion. Well, it's detox and slow motion. It's a way to remove our addiction to samsara, our addiction to thought, our addiction to whatever. And again, whoa, is this helpful in terms of me relating to other people? It's just a matter of degree. Everybody has this potentiality for addiction. I see another is what I'm blind to myself. And so when I was in retreat, it's like, holy crap, I am just as addicted to my movement, to my action, to my thought, as these other people are to their forms of substance abuse. And so therefore, I wanted to throw that your way and then talk about, um, and then I'll pause for a second because I get so excited about this, is talk about this kind of healthy reductionism, where basically if we apply the, the principles of reductionism properly, it's not a bad thing. It's, it's a level of articulation simplifying in the best sense. And so then when I, where I'm going with this is, like I mentioned almost two hours ago, to me, I find it incredibly insightful to see, to, to study the iteration of addiction in the ways that you're writing about. But now going really integral, talking about like sobriety principle, what does it mean to really recover from samsara? What is intoxication principle? How do these things actually apply at iterative levels all the way up and down the food chain, leading even into psycho-spiritual levels of this phenomenology. And so I, I personally find when I read your book, I said, oh my God, this is this is exactly the stuff that I'm addicted to. It's just a different form of substance abuse. So I wanted to pause there. I have more to say, but that's a shy across the bow in terms of what uh, um, I wanted to turn to before we start to close here. Maybe I wouldn't say bringing it up, but I'm um, talking about it at, at this particular level of experience. Wow. Let me, let me just say, you're a brave man, Andrew, you and your little box, you know, my God, that's a deep bow. That's great. And uh, I was just thinking that was, that was Buddhist technology. You know, that little box, they didn't have this stuff. So they put you in a box. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. I wake's not that hard, but you know, (laughs) anyway, Wow, I'm glad, I'm glad you glad you stuck with it. So, what does it mean to be sober? Is that the question? Yeah, what does it mean to be sober? What does it mean to be intoxicated at all these other levels? Because I would say again, playfully, but also somewhat gallows humor, we're all living under the influence. 
In this case, we're living under the influence of ignorance and its byproduct of reification and everything else. And so to me, it's like, hey, we can take this particular self-similar fractal iteration of this process and, and, and extend it up and down the ladder to realize, wait a second, exactly what we're talking about here has a vast level of descriptive and prescriptive applicability. What we're doing on psycho-spiritual levels, completely irrespective, I wouldn't say completely, but um, I think you get where I'm coming from. In, in, in addition to augmentation of everything we talk about and that you write about so beautifully in terms of traditional instances of sobriety, intoxication, and all those principles. Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's a great question. It's kind of like saying, well, what does it mean to be enlightened? It's, you got it. You know, on yeah. and on and on and on. We've been, we've been batting that one around for, for uh, uh, oh, God, for thousands of years. And, and I've been reading A.H. Almas uh, right. recently, right. and he's he's about as good as it gets on that, his latest books. We, we were able to interview him, and he's asked to come back again. I'm excited about that. Yeah, he's a rock star, but, totally. But first of all, being sober means being honest, you know, and this is, of course, this is all progressive and, and developmental, but the first thing you just gotta be honest. I am a drunk and this is my sixth rehab. And I think every time it's going to be different when I start using and it's not different. It gets worse. So yeah and some people that son of a bitch over there can sit there and drink two or three glasses of wine and get up and have a life the next day i can't do that and during this addiction i became completely self-absorbed mm -hmm. nobody or yep. anything mattered i didn't even matter just getting high yeah, and, yeah. and staving off the fear of withdrawals that's all so um, when somebody's in recovery and, and, and this, you know, this, it's not just, you click the, you know, the switch and you're, you're recovered, but there's, there's a deep integrity and honesty there that I find. And they realize that it's a one day at a time. True, and true. if you fall off that wagon, yep. you're going to fall off. So the, and, and it's kind of, the disease forces you to get honest because you have to be honest about yourself. And if you start lying to others or lying to yourself, it just builds. And you, you know, it's in that, that attic voice again, that, that, that nasty wolf you, we talked about, you know, begins to take over, you're feeding it. So, so real honesty and the realization that uh, this, this disease was soul destroying. I'm talking about soul. That's the deepest part of the individual human where yeah. kind of the all and us, I meet big eye, little eye. And um, I was a selfish asshole and I hurt people. I don't want to do that anymore. So I'm going to go to the damn meeting, even though I don't want to go. You know, oh, I know everything. I want to go. One time a guy was saying this. It's, well, did you ever think? There might be somebody there that needs you to listen to them. Yeah. Okay, I'm going, John. You know, so so there is a uh, there's a humility, a self recognition, honesty, compassion begins to emerge, right? And 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 of course, and and 
uh, the last step in 12 steps is giving back and helping other uh, uh, alcoholics. It was originally for alcoholics. It's expanded to just about everything now. But the, the, that path of service and that my staying sober and on this path means I can't be a selfish asshole anymore. God, would that be nice? But I just can't do that and survive because I've been wounded in such a way that if I don't, you know, be of service, I'm going to lose uh, my connection with God as I understand him or her, and I'm going to get lost in the hell and the fog of addiction again. So there's, you know, it's like you go there, and the first thing they say is, well, just help arrange the chairs. Okay. And that's the first step. You're doing something for other people. And um, yeah, and, and that just that just progresses. And then then, you know, when you you still do your life, but but there's always uh, knowing that you're living kind of in a state of grace because you didn't use today because you're you know, they say your worst day sober is like much, much, much better uh, than your best day when you were in the throes of your disease. So, and it helps. That's why it helps to have meetings. You, you hear that people tell their stories. Oh God. Yes. I remember that, you know? And of course you're there to listen, open your heart and say, okay, brother, there's, there's hope and you can sponsor others. So this honesty service, uh, a spiritual center to your life. And at some point people say they, they say this, that they're, they're even, that there's gratitude that this happened to you because otherwise you would have never had to do the stuff you did in order to get you to that place of compassion and service and gratitude and this, you know, the spiritual center of your life and the recognition of higher power. And, uh, is that an answer? That's beautiful. No, I mean, yeah, just want to give you a hug, man. It's like that that's just awesome. Just awesome. Well, John, I, I could I could talk to you all day, man. I mean, this is like so rich. I want to respect your time. Um, so we start to close up here, my friend. Any question I didn't ask? Anything that you want to share before we start to wind it up? Yeah, just just remember to get this the free uh eye awake track that we're, we're giving out and you can share that with whoever you want. You know, you're not going to get busted for copyright things. Just don't sell it for crying out loud, yeah. uh, but, but give it to people and use it of service. And uh, yeah, to just, just use the track and, and know if you, if you're struggling, um, there is hope. Millions of people have come through this hell, but millions of us are also dying. And uh, how that feeds into, you know, the meta crisis, it's, it's a big part. And thank you for, for inviting me here and letting us talk about all this stuff. And it's my prayer that this will be useful. And, uh, um, you know, oh, it's, been, it's been incredible. Yeah, I've learned so much. What, what are you currently working on? Maybe say a couple of words about this amazing podcast that you do with Roger. It's like yeah. off the charts. What what else are you currently working on? Other ways that people can know about your work and, and support you in your in your own ventures? Well, I I'm uh, after I wrote this Ukraine song, it's like, oh, I'm a songwriter. You know, I can do this. So I'm I'm recording another album, and I think I'm going to just release them uh, individually, the songs, 
I don't think I'm charged from, I don't know. I haven't worked out, but just get it out there in the world. But, and this is bringing up a good point we didn't mention, but if you are a creative person or you have a gift to give that you're not giving and that you're not working on and facilitating and getting better at, that's going to cause problems inside. You're going to get cynical and despairing. And uh, if you're, you're, uh, you know, it could cause relapse if you're an alcoholic and if you're just, you're not an addict, we all have our issues, but that's not good. You've got to, you've got to give your gifts in one of the highest uh, forms of human, a state of human experience is when we feel the wisdom coming through us as if we're a channel and just we're getting out of the way and, and God's just, you know, sending his love and wisdom out to the world. That's, yeah, that's, yeah. Yeah, that's spot on. That's spot on. Well, John, this has been really, you're, you're in the spirit of integral, you are one integral mofo, man. I mean, like on one level, you're speaking from he- from the divinity, from the heavens. And on one level, you're street smarts. You're speaking from the level of the earth. And so your capacity to join heaven and earth you actually are living embodiment of, of of the integral principles altogether, and we're all beneficiaries of your work. So it's been a wonderful opportunity to get to know you, to read your work, study it actually, to hang out with you here for the last little bit. Um, you're doing some amazing things, and thank you so much for your time and energy, and let's perhaps consider doing it again at some point. It's been so rich. Wonderful. Thank you. God bless. Take care. that's it for today. Thanks for joining us. And a big thanks to John for sharing his remarkable wisdom. We hope you're enjoying the Edge of Mind podcast as much as we enjoy making it. Please spread the word, rate the podcast, and subscribe to it if you haven't already. It's one way to invite more people into our community and into conversations in the fields of science, philosophy, psychology, and spirituality. Mm